Say goodbye to throwing a scary amount of made-in-China mealworms to your chickens and say hello to a happier, healthier flock with Grubbly Farm Scrublies, the official chicken snack of the Drink and Farm podcast. Less is more with Grubblies. They have 50 times more calcium than mealworms, which means more bang for your buck to get higher quality eggshells. They're also a great protein snack for your little chicken monsters, which means they'll have healthy, shiny, and less spooky feathers. So head on over to grublyfarms.com and use code FARM15 to get 15% off your first order. Coming in like with a bang. Hi, Bev. <laughs> what are you drinking over there? So my drink was a little less dangerous than your drink. <laughs> oh my god! It's a uh, mixed wine spritzer. I did the uh, Dark Horse Cabernet Sauvignon, which are the grapes that our friend Tara with uh, Beaver Vineyards grows, and will hopefully be in that wine. I think sometime next year. And a little bit of uh, the lemon herb, simple goodness sisters syrup, mm. and some Sprite. Well, you got fancy today. I did. What are you drinking over there? <laughs> Something really scary. Um, so today I am drinking Necro, and it's actually, the full name is Necro Mango Con, um, mm. and it's a mango mead with black pepper added. And it's from a meadery called Bee Nectar, which is in Ferndale, Michigan. And it's got a kind of cool, creepy story on the side. So if you have this available to you um, go or go online and read the story, it's kind of cool. Um, but I figured since this is coming out a day, like probably the day before Halloween. Yeah. Um, might as well keep the creepy vibe. But this is still wine, but it's not grape wine because this, again me kind of have some mixed feelings about one of my favorite things but not to the point where I'd never drink it again just to be right. clear <laughs> just to be clear <laughs> and welcome to we drink and we farm things the mini zone yeah so today we're gonna talk about Netflix season two episode two reign of terroir and this is with the rotten series so this is the second episode we're gonna talk about the first one we talked about was the avocado war. Lucky for you, these are not like a like something you need to watch in order. So if you didn't listen to that one, go do that after you listen to this one. Yeah, and it's definitely not a requirement that you watch the episode before you listen to us talk about it because I don't know that there's necessarily spoilers with this. Like it's on Rotten, so yeah. you know it's going to be bad. <laughs> yeah. And if you if you prefer to watch it first, just, you know, pause this and come back to it. But we're going to give you our spin on it and what we thought and how we felt watching it. And then if you're curious, about what other people think or want to tell us what you think, you can come over to our Facebook group, We Drink and We Farm Things, and let us know what you thought. 
And before we dive in, uh, we want to let you know that our drinks this episode were sponsored by Molly K, which is at hippie underscore hens underscore hacienda over on the Instagram. So cheers, ladies. She's a brand new drinks sponsor. So thanks. Yeah, thank you. So I don't know about you, but I felt like this was another one where they really built it up to be like super scary and kind of project an image of violence like immediately and for me when I saw that I kind of had like an eye roll because I felt like this is dramatic this the things they're cutting to right now aren't actually like what this guy is doing like this is stupid that was my initial reaction because it's like this old dude talking (laughs) and then it's like violence 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 I called him French mafia (laughs) grandpa because there was just something about him that made me think that he had something to do with that I don't know if it was like the necklace or his attitude or what but like I was watching this and he's just like calmly explaining like I don't know why violence is okay and they're cutting back and forth to clips of it. And I was like, oh, my God, this is intense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think it did its job by giving us both an emotional reaction. Yours was like, holy crap, this is intense. Mine was like, okay, grandpa, whatever. <laughs> and your reaction kind of sounds like the appropriate reaction that should have been had as I sat through this documentary. <laughs> well, once they were done... Uh, trying to get us geared up. I don't know. And scared? I think that was what they were going for. <laughs> scared. Maybe. Kind of catch our attention a little bit at the very least. Right. <laughs> uh, we learned that wine is a potent image of French culture, which, I mean, if you have ears or eyes or read anything, I think you know that already. Yeah. Yeah, that's not probably a true surprise to most people. Um, but the way they kind of framed it was that it invokes images of like sophistication and luxury and Bev made a note um about cigarettes because yeah everyone in France smokes right or at least that's what it kind of felt like in the documentary and it was really weird for me to see someone openly smoking on my tv because you you really don't see that anymore yeah I think you're right about that I don't watch a ton of tv but uh, it stood out to me immediately because I feel like I actually don't see smoking all that often anymore. Now that we're in Southern Ohio, I see it yeah. way more than I did in Arizona. It was a little bit of a culture shock. But yeah, it's just it seems to be in decline, at least out in public or, you know, on TV. Yeah, for me, it's definitely like on TV. And some of you that know might know that there are like episodes in a show on Netflix called Stranger Things where they're going in and cutting scenes where they're smoking. But that TV show is set like in the 80s where that was happening a lot, especially on TV, and it wasn't known to be like a bad thing. So it was more of like a character or a timeline choice, but they're going in and cutting it because people <laughs> oh, were geez. complaining about it. I mean, um, everybody smoked on Mad Men too, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but Mad Men's up there, but it's not a Netflix original. So, yeah, you know, Netflix, apparently, in the rockin', rotten documentary, it's fine to show smoking, though, because it's this really cool French dude um, doing it. Right. So the cool kids are doing it, right? And then they start talking about how the new wine regions are vying for France's crown. And the shocker was that China is one of them. 
Yeah, I was like, since when? I have never heard that China is into wine. Yeah, and it kind of triggered a, a, oh, here we go again feeling in me. Like, China's going to be the bad guy again. And does China ever really have, like, any good original ideas? Or do they just, like, take crap and, like, become the best at it? Like, asking for a friend. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Like, because it's not an original idea, but they're just not known for that. And it kind of surprised me. Well, and I was kind of putting some thought into this. So one of the things that China does is they have really lax um, environmental and human rights Mm, regulations. mm -hmm. So that's why China makes all the things, because everybody wants everything for cheaper. So China makes it. It causes lots of pollution, and there's lots of extra things in it that people weren't expecting for some reason, and then we get all upset. Um, but yeah, that that's basically why China has their fingers in everything, because everybody wants them to do everything, because they can do it for the cheapest price. Right. But more on that later. Trust me, we'll come back to China. <laughs> <laughs> so the wine business is changing, and fancy wine know-it-all person on the screen says that winemakers need to adapt to changes. But people hate change, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, I do most times. I'm usually <laughs> at least a little annoyed by change, and then if if I end up agreeing with it, it's fine. But <laughs> well, and it takes a little time to get to that point, right? Like the first time you hear that something is changing, the immediate things that flood my brain are all of the extra work that learning this new process mm-hmm. or new whatever is going to cause to me, which is a total knee jerk emotional reaction. I'm trying to get better about it, but yeah. I mean, yeah, that's basically the gist of why winemakers were mad about it. <laughs> right. And winemakers and wine has such a long history. And while there might be newer technology that has um, has made things easier, anything that's threatening the actual industry or what they think is a threat to the industry, they're not going to like. And that's just I kind of get it. Yeah. Well, and there was a lot of talk about how they were saying that the new wine culture that was sort of coming out was threatening French's like historical culture around winemaking. But like what happened in the past has already happened. And I think things are sort of supposed to evolve as they go forward. So I always feel like it's important to point out that just because things have always been done a certain way doesn't mean that they always have to be done that way because we learn new things and new people get into wine and, you know. I think French Mafia Grandpa would disagree with you. (laughs) Oh, I know French Mafia Grandpa would disagree with me. (laughs) So then they have us like dip our toe in the idea of um, Spanish wine, which is going to be the bad guy in this. Um, and Spanish wine being labeled as French wine, which I saw in the notes here that you said is totes illegal. But actually, it depends on how you're doing it. And they point this out later in the documentary. So if you're putting a French label or a Spanish wine, you got a fr- Spanish wine in a bottle and you're putting a French label on it and claiming it's, Fran- it's from France, then yeah, that's totes illegal. But something they do is that they take the Spanish wine and put a French-looking label on it, which oh. is not illegal. So, yeah. But both happen in this documentary. I do yeah. want to point that out. Both do happen. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of smart. It is. Well, so people that do, like, counterfeit or fraud, stuff like that, like, they seem to be really good at that. Yeah, absolutely. 
yeah, apparently cheaper wine is where it's at in the current market. And um, this counterfeit wine is actually a really big moneymaker, which I think is why people are getting up in arms about it, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And because there's a lot of money to be made, money equals violence. At least in the rotten world, it does. We've watched enough episodes. We should know this. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And now we're back to the French mafia grandpa. And people are doing terrifying things like throwing lit tires into buildings while he's talking. Like it's like a cut back and forth. And it makes you kind of realize that, wow, wine might be synonymous with violence. But why? And we're going to get into that. I do want to point out, though, that I kind of love this grandpa. He's clearly not to be trifled with. And I feel like he could tell me some good stories over some amazing wine. But I would not want to be on his bad side. (laughs) And you know what's funny? I had the exact opposite reaction to him. I did not like him whatsoever. (laughs) So what you're saying is we will not be interviewing him on the podcast. We will not. Well, we couldn't understand him anyways. (laughs) He only speaks French. That's true. Darn it. (laughs) But I think what uh, bothered me so much about him was his uh, lackadaisical, what's the word I'm looking for, like feeling that he gave off about the terror that is clearly being depicted on the screen. Like he just sort of shrugged his shoulders and was like, well, this is what people get when you try to change things. So like he's got a like a glass of cab in one hand and like a tire iron in the other. And he's just busting kneecaps casually kind of vibe. Yeah, that was exactly what it felt like to me. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like the anti-violence. I'm the peacekeeper. Uh, and that's when the opening uh, theme rolled. So this has just been two minutes of the documentary. <laughs> yeah. But it gave a really nice overview of everything we're going to touch on today. Yes. Yes. So now enters winemaker Jeff Kudalu. And <laughs> Beth put in the notes, I just think it's kind of funny. Spelling, whatever. I made it phonetic, which I'm grateful for because there's <laughs> no way I would have remembered um, and I did, I was able to catch the appropriate spelling because fun fact, Sam sometimes watch TV with captions on because it helps me catch more, especially when Matt is mowing the lawn and the stepkids are watching something obnoxious from the D- Disney channel in the other room. Like, so that was necessary for this one. And also there were so many different languages spoken in this one. So we'll kind of precursor this with, we try to write things out phonetically, but we're probably going to say I'm wrong. <laughs> Oh, for sure. I mean, we always say things wrong. That's kind of become our thing on accident. And we don't do it to sound ignorant. It's just kind of what ends up happening while we're making notes. And we're like, shit, we didn't write down how to say that. Oh, well. Oh, well. (laughs) If you want to correct us, you can go watch it and correct us. We won't be upset by it. (laughs) Yeah, no. (laughs) So this Jeff guy is a fifth generation winemaker. And he has vines and wine and barrels that his great-great-grandfather put into the barrels. So there's a lot of history on his vineyard. And he's located in Languedoc, Roussillon? Roussillon. Roussillon. So we're just going to call it Languedoc because that's easy. Yeah. And this is the most productive wine region in the world. So a third of France's wine is from here. And it's perfectly suited for wine cultivation. The sun and soil are just like the perfect mix of what they need to produce a shit ton of wine. And 5% of all the wine in the world comes from Languedoc. 
And that means that 1.7 billion bottles a year are produced from this region. So kind of a big deal. Yeah, and it's not a very big region either. If you look at it on the map, you're going to be like, holy shit. Yeah. (laughs) That's a lot of wine. (laughs) They are productive and they are efficient in the way that they're doing things if they're producing that many bottles a year. Yeah. And Long Dock has an ancient wine culture, but it's not a luxury wine culture. They have an industry that's built on creating what's called table wine, which is just, you know, I mean, I think everybody's drank a table wine if you mm-hmm. drink wine. Um, it's usually a blend of a bunch of different kinds. It's not overly expensive. And it goes with a lot of different things. So a lot of different people are into drinking it. And the consumption of wine in Long Dock is about drinking wine as a healthy everyday lifestyle, not just on special occasions. Right. And I really enjoyed that they showed a relatively attractive French dude that's in the vineyard talking about how he drinks wine every day, is super healthy, and started working at 2 a.m. Because you got to be a product of the product, right? (laughs) Right. Yeah, I got that too. And I looked at him, I was like, geez, since 2 a.m.? Holy cow. And I'm like, they would put a a semi-attractive person on the screen that's physically fit to say, I drink wine every day and it keeps the doctor away, essentially. Good plug for wine. Good yes. plug for wine. But overall, wine consumption in, in France is in the decline. Or it's declining. So the consumer cares about what goes in their wine now. And they have so many choices. They have choices from California, Chile, Australia. And so the market is saturated with really good wine. Yeah. And Jeff Kudalu's family decided that they wanted to cater to a newer, pickier wine consumer by going organic, which at the time was seen as being super eccentric. Uh, But Jeff describes it as being forward thinking, which I think is pretty cool. Like he's like, no, we weren't weirdos. We saw what was coming and decided to make a change, even though they have all this history at their family's vineyard. Right. So they shrank the size of their vineyard and planted trees. And this is actually where I paused the documentary to get up and get some wine because all the pictures of grapes made me thirsty. And it's been a long (laughs) week. And I picked a Portuguese wine because I embrace choices being offered to me as a consumer. (laughs) Right. Well, today I'm drinking California wine. There you go. So this move by Jeff and his family was not universally admired and they were attacked. Somebody came down and burned down their olive trees and some of the vines and they actually did it multiple times. So at this point, I was kind of glad that I had wine in my hand because that's intense. Yeah, it is super intense. And Jeff refers to the people that did this as terrorists because they're fighting against life is what he says. You know, his trees Mm -hmm. and his vines were life. And by burning them down and fighting against them, that was being anti-life in Jeff's view. Right. And I immediately suspect that it was French Mafia Grandpa. Oh, Because we've seen him. Same. <laughs> <laughs> and he talked about violence against, you know, wineries that were not doing things the old way or the way that he mm-hmm. thought that they should be done, I guess. Um, but Jeff insists that he doesn't want to know who did it, be- which I thought was kind of interesting. <laughs> because snitches get stitches, Bev. That's why. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> 
But he also says that he really dislikes talking about it. I mean, I'm sure that it invokes some emotions to mm-hmm. him because like a lot of work goes into planting all that stuff and have somebody just like burn it down. It's got to be like a stab in the heart. Yeah. Uh, but also he thinks that by giving uh, the people who incite this kind of violence uh, any attention, you're making them happy or you're mm-hmm. helping them get their mm-hmm. message out, which makes sense too. Yeah. And here Jeff is smoking again. But if I had been through what he'd been through, I'd probably need a cigarette as well. So I kind of get it. (laughs) Right. And then this is where we learn that France has a long history of civil protest, like since the revolution. And this region is known for especially violent protests, hence all of the violence. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is where we're introduced to a homegrown terror group called the Krav. Excellent at terror, not so good at coming up with names that are intimidating. <laughs> I mean, the way they say Krav, it's more like Krav. You know, it's got that French like spitty noise to it that I can't do because it just sounds like I just like gagged on something. But <laughs> it doesn't seem like it's super scary. Um, and... We looked it up on Wikipedia to get some more backstory. And Bev, do you want to take a stab at how the French name is for the Krav, like the long name? Yes, it's Comité Regional d'Action Viticole. Uh, I don't know what all of that means. Regional Committee of French. Viticulture Action. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, and it's a group of militant French wine producers. And the group has claimed responsibility for numerous attacks, including dynamiting grocery stores, a winery, the agriculture ministry offices in two cities, burning a car at another, hijacking a tanker, and destroying large quantities of non-French wine. So this group means business. Yeah. The last one just really hurts my heart, though. Like, why would you waste wine? That's alcohol (laughs) abuse. They need to add that to the list. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So the Krav is mainly active in Languedoc, which is in the south of France, and it's made up of a small group of wine growers that feel politically and economically left out. The group was originally started in the 60s, and it believes that its region has been plagued by surplus production and a need to adopt the quality and quantity of wine produced to changing market realities, including reduced domestic demand for simple wine for everyday consumption. Which is like antithesis to everything that they believe. Yeah. So, you know, they feel a lot of feelings. Yeah. (laughs) And show it with violence. Right. (laughs) So they claim that the violence is not directed at people, but at wine. But people are definitely being affected by their violence towards wine. Oh, for sure. So I'm not sure how I feel about that. Yeah. And the Krav's publicized demands have regularly included elements that are more or less impossible for French politicians to implement because of European Union rules, because that would mean interfering with the simple market and introducing national subsidies on top of common agricultural policy. So, like, basically, the... The government can't comply with what they want because it would be breaking their own laws and international treaties that they have in Mm. effect. I believe they're part of the EU, is my guess. Okay. Yeah, so the group, the Krav, has called for higher restrictive tariffs against the rising imports of Spanish and Italian wine, where lower social cost, less red tape, and a different industry structure leads to more economical wine production. And the consumer preference for wine brands, which are uncomplicated wine labels, 
varietal labeling and new world wine styles has also led to expanding exports from Australia, Chile, the United States, and other new world producers. So it I can't imagine being in the French government and having to deal with this because you're right. Like they probably have all these treaties they've signed, kind of like we talked about with NAFTA for avocados. Yeah. And how that the documentary said that farmers were very against it. This doesn't feel a whole lot different other than we didn't like flip cars and burn them. Yeah. When NAFTA went through. <laughs> At least I don't think we did. <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, we were young when NAFTA was signed, so we probably wouldn't have noticed, but um... (laughs) we'll have to Google it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, and so hearing this and like talking about it out loud, like what it kind of feels to me is that these wine makers are just really upset because things are changing around them and they feel like they have no control over it. But like some of the things the government doesn't have any control of either, like consumer preference for labeling and knowing Mm -hmm. what's in their wine or what kind of grapes are in it and what kind of varietals there are in it like the government doesn't have any control over what consumers say they want like that's kind of part of creating a market like a a product you have to listen to your consumers right unless you're in like a communist country yeah and i don't (laughs) think france is communist no they're not they're not But, oh, my gosh, we finally have a name for French Mafia Grandpa, even though I think I'm just going to keep calling him French Mafia Grandpa. (laughs) So his name is Jean Huillet. He's a wine grower, and he's clearly a member of the Crav. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and he proudly shows us his grape tattoo that has, like, a a bunch of grapes on it, and he says it's... it's like his representation of what he is. He's a grape, and it has like a fist punching out of it, and it means he's not to be messed with, and he'll defend himself. And the word sempre is under it, which means always. He will always be a man of the earth, a wine grower, and a fighter. And I mean, I always appreciate a good story or meaning behind attack too, so I kind of dig that. He wasn't just getting it to get it, but <laughs> the message behind it is a little intense. It's just a little intimidating. (laughs) So we learned that French Mafia Grandpa didn't grow up in Languedoc. Uh, He spent his holidays there and became a lover of nature there, which is kind of a cool story. And I really encourage you to go listen to his whole story. Mm -hmm. But the gist of it is, is that um, he wanted to be free from hierarchy. So that was one of the reasons why he moved to Languedoc and wanted to do something for himself. Uh, He was actually in the army and he says that he didn't do well in the army because of the hierarchy that they um, had in there. And now some of this is translated from French. So that's why they used a word like hierarchy. But basically, he doesn't like authority is what it sounds like. He doesn't like people telling him what he needs to do. Unless it's the government telling him what he needs to do because he set the rules. Is what it sounds yes, like. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it turns out that his army background actually made him perfect to become a leader of the Kravis movement. So he's not just a member, he's a leader. And then we're like, oh, I get it now. Yeah. <laughs> the army taught you to blow things up without getting caught because he's clearly a pyro. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And that was just perfect for him. So he got something out of his army background. So, you know, there's that. <laughs> I mean, yay. (laughs) And despite their violent attacks, the Krav garnered real public sympathy in the 70s. Wine growing influenced the majority of French economy. 
They were in the newspaper daily, and they were seen as a Che Guevara-style romanticism. So Che Guevara. Oh, I said that um, way wrong. <laughs> <laughs> or no, I'm sorry. I said it wrong also. It's Che Guevara. That's oh. what it is. Yeah, Che Guevara. So now that I've said it, you recognize the name, right? No. Oh, you don't? Okay. Uh-uh. So um, I got this info from Wikipedia also because we just wanted a quick way to introduce him. We're going to because we talk about a lot of different like people. So it's important to know where they fit in in history in order to really like understand the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was a guerrilla leader, diplomat and military theorist. And he was a major figure of the Cuban Revolution. So that's why his name probably sounds familiar to some people. Thank you, Wikipedia. (laughs) Yes. Give them $5, please, and thank you. Um, And so people were attracted to the Krav's message. Uh, To them, the Krav defended honor. And in fact, Muammar Gaddafi sent weapons and emissaries to the Krav, hoping that they could overthrow the French Republic. And yes, it was that (laughs) Gaddafi. (laughs) If you were like, wait, you just said Che Guevara, and now we're talking about (laughs) Gaddafi. (laughs) (laughs) And if you don't know who Gaddafi was, uh, he was the Libyan authoritarian dictator for almost four decades. So his name should be semi familiar yeah and he was super into arab nationalism and socialism so that kind of gives you an idea of where his head was at (laughs) with this whole thing (laughs) yes it it wasn't it wasn't for good that he was sending them (laughs) weapons and emissaries (laughs) it was to cause more chaos yes so uh french mafia grandpa claims that it's not that the krav is not a political movement which i call bullshit on that But he calls it a spontaneous organization of winemakers who want to defend their businesses and families, which I'm sure there's a component of that. But if you're like bringing together a spontaneous group of winemakers to blow shit up, there's some strategery there. That's not all spontaneous. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, you got to get like the weapons. Yeah. The petrol. Yeah. So in the 1980s, the government introduced uprooting schemes, which paid winemakers to tear out their vines and not plant anything for a while. And yeah, I'd probably want to flip cars and set them on fire with this idea too. So I kind of get it. And poor French mafia grandpa lost half of his vineyards during this time. Yeah. And this is where we segue into the big bad wine cooperatives. Well, that's what French Mafia Grandpa would want you to think. So basically, (laughs) uh, wine cooperatives are basically like a place where small wineries send all their wine to and it kind of like bundles them into these huge vats and it gives the smaller wineries more clout in the marketplace. So they're only doing bulk wine here, but it's good quality. So wine is sold from wineries by tankers instead of bottles. And actually, 50 to 70% of wine on the market is produced in bulk. So if you want to know if you, like, flip over your wine bottle on the label and you'll see something like, this wine was produced here and bottled in a different place, most likely that is wine that was produced in this fashion. Whereas with the Necro that I'm drinking today, that is bottled by the smaller winery itself. 
So 25 to 30 million bottles filled um, are filled each year from this wine cooperative. And there's a lot of pressure on winemakers to support price points that the supermarkets and chains want to put out to consumers, which means that the margins keep getting slimmer every year. For example, for a bottle of wine that would sell for five pounds, a 6% of that margin will go to the winemaker. But for a bottle that is sold for 20 pounds, 35% of the price goes back to the grower. So that's a big difference. Yeah, that is. That's a huge difference. And now that cute French dude is back on the screen and he tells us that the French government is making things harder on them every year when the government claims that they're trying to make things easier on them. And cute dude doesn't even make minimum wage for how many hours he's working in the winery and with those margins. So he might have to cut up, cut back on his daily wine consumption. I think that was the moral of his story. (laughs) I think so, too. Well, and one thing to keep in mind, too, like when you I think I think farmers kind of have this problem, too. Like if they really counted out how many hours they spend worrying about their farm or changing things or ordering things or, you know, redoing something because the weather screwed it all up for them, like they would not like the hourly yeah. rate either. <laughs> it's like a sunrise to sunset type thing, definitely. Yeah. Well, and we could say that about the podcast too. Basically anything <laughs> that you own and you do, you always put more work into yes. it, like more hours. <laughs> Great point. So this is where things get a little weird because, you know, segue from cute French guy to not so cute French guy and they start talking about other sources of income and they introduce us to Borwe which looks like Boris. So I might just start calling him Boris. We'll see. <laughs> but Borwe has a swinger bed and breakfast. Like, what? <laughs> when this happened, I just like, I did a double take at the screen and I was like, wait, how did we end up in his extension? <laughs> well, and He's- I'm like, he was first talking before they like dropped that bomb. And I'm looking at the pictures in the background. And I'm like, is that woman like, is that sketch? Is she touching herself? Like, what? I know the <laughs> French are like pretty expressive and open about their sexuality and their bodies. But this feels a little inappropriate. <laughs> Well, he was like walking around and he was pointing out the different things in the bed and breakfast. And he's like, there's something for everyone here. And I was like, yeah, there really is. And I'm like, are we watching Fifty Shades of Grey now? Because I'm seeing a lot of imagery that might belong in that movie instead. (laughs) But he claims that nothing bad ever happens there. Which like it's all consensual. Right. But okay, Bori. (laughs) We'll see. But... (laughs) Now we're, like, cutting back. So that is, like, for other sources of income, that is the only one they show. And I think they just learned this about Borwe, and they're like, we have to put this in the documentary because sex sells. We have to. And they just, like, throw that out there and never go back to it. (laughs) I would have loved if they would have told us what other wine growers do as, like, their off-farm job. Because, like, off-farm jobs aren't uncommon. A lot of people in the United States and all over the world that farm also do something else. Right. But I'm thinking that maybe that need of other sources of income was kind of bullshit and they just wanted to show his sex dungeon. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) But if other growers in this documentary did have other jobs, I agree. I would have liked to see a more normal approach. (laughs) And not so creative approach. <laughs> One of them had to be an accountant, right? Like- right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, now we're cutting to um, the claim that cheap imported wines are a threat. So 
I found this kind of interesting. So Krav's initial focus kind of was on Algeria because there was a lot of imported wines coming in from there. But now it's Spain. And wine negotiators in France are buying wine from Spain because it's cheaper. Spain uses cheaper materials, cheaper labor, and their actual costs are very low. So bulk Spanish wine looks very French, but it's not. And it's totally legal for them to be doing this um, and putting French-looking labels on things. But it pisses French winemakers off and they consider it fraud. So you really got to look at the fine print in order to know what you're drinking. And it's tempting to send, to sell it under that French-looking label because they can actually charge more, even though the wine inside the bottle is not French. And, you know, so, like, while that feels uh, ethically ambiguous, I guess, <laughs> to me, <laughs> I, I mean, I can understand why they do it. It's just, it's the same reason why companies do, like, greenwashing to their packaging, you know, they try to point out the environmentally friendly things about their product, even mm-hmm. if it's sort of bullshit, because they know consumers don't have a lot of time at the store. So they just pick it up and they're like, oh, this helps the environment and throw it in their cart. Like somebody picks up that bottle of wine and they're like, oh, I love French wine and throws it in like without reading where it actually came right. from. <laughs> so it's part of the game here is that it's the consumer's responsibility. If they really care about being conscious about the products they're buying to slow down and read and understand what they're actually buying but most people might not really even care they're just picking it up and throwing it in their cart this works and it's cheap so a not so legal approach that was um caught up in the news was that there were 10 million bottles of spanish rosé that were labeled as french so they were labeled that way on purpose um but there was like a small section of the newspaper where you heard that because it wasn't expensive or fancy. Now, if it was very spen- expensive or fran- fancy, this snooty wine lady claims that they, it, would, it would get more press. So the consumers and growers are being ripped off. Not too many people know about it when it happens on a super large scale um, because it's just not as important. But wholesale importers are considered the enemy because this thing continues to happen according to... Uh, French mafia grandpa. Yeah, and in 2016, the Krav filmed themselves attacking a wine distributor called Vinades, and they accused them of criminal import practices, and there were lots of fire Z tires. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Lots of fire Z tires. <laughs> that might have been I the mean, wine typing there. <laughs> I, why would they want to breathe that? And I mean, like, so when we're talking about burning tires, they Ugh, were stinks. tearing the tires while they were burning and throwing them into buildings. <laughs> like, I'm like, dude, that could stick to you. Stop it. <laughs> Total badasses. <laughs> So between 2016 and 2017, police accused the Krav of 32 acts of violence. Prosecutors started wiretapping suspected members. And in May of 2017, police intercepted a convoy of 32 wine growers on their way to Bordeaux. And the police claimed that they seized five axes, three mallets, 60 liters of diesel fuel, Molotov cocktails, a blowtorch, and a tear gas bomb from their vehicles, which sounds totally innocent or maybe like a really screwed up version of the 12 Days of Christmas. (laughs) I mean, that's what I drive around in the back of my Subaru all the time. (laughs) You know, I am not surprised by that. (laughs) The peacemaker drives around with... (laughs) 
the smell you, the smell is is horrifying no <laughs> <laughs> burning tires just you can't get that out of the material of the seats even if it's leather yes so that they were thought to be headed to bordeaux to attack a winemaker up there so bori was included in the group that got arrested and I'm kind of wondering, because he claimed back at his swinger party club thing that he is always close by, but who was watching his swinger party club while he was allegedly headed off to Bordeaux to F things up? I mean, <laughs> who knows? Maybe French Mafia grandpa. Probably. So the group claims that they actually only had an axe, a chainsaw, and some petrol with them, and that's always in their truck, so the story isn't really lining up. And there's like they're like standing around this table and they're drinking wine and they're being friendly and they say we are the people of the terroir. And I thought that was really interesting because they're being called terrorist and it's almost like a play on words, like terrorist terroir with what yep. they're saying and in the documentary title and I was like, "Oh, that I got to write that down. I got to pause it and write that down." <laughs> So Borui said that they were going to just go up there and confront a French winemaker who was putting Spanish wine in bottles with French labels, and eventually the case was dismissed. But the legal troubles didn't end there, because now Borui is being accused of being part of the 2016 attack. But he says that they have no proof, and he does not take French justice seriously, so he's not too worried about it. Yeah, he does not appear to be, and he seems to kind of think that all of this is just like a, yeah, no big deal. Yeah. <laughs> Let me smoke my cigarettes, drink my wine, and watch people do their thing in my swinger club. <laughs> <laughs> so now we're going to start transitioning into how the competition is not Spain, but China, which we're like, oh my god, China makes wine. <laughs> we're like, what the hell? Here we go again with China. <laughs> But it kind of makes sense, like, once they explained it in the documentary, because yeah. 10 years ago, uh, China sort of became the new wine frontier because they do have a swelling middle class. And Chinese winemakers see big opportunities there. So this takes us to the Ningxia province of China. So the remote region, this is a remote region in north central China, and it's a, at the edge of the Gobi Desert, and it's like also kind of got some mountains around it, but they're like transforming the desert into vineyards, and it's a huge new front in China's growing footprint in agriculture. And this is where they start introducing us to some new people. So we have Wang Crazy Fang, who is a winemaker. Um, and the crazy is like in, in like quotations, it's a nickname she's gotten that she, we come to find out she likes. And then we also meet Mike Ing Ingsley, who's an operations guy. Um, and they're, we're kind of like walking around telling, like showing us their grapes and like Wong is like eating grapes and spitting them out saying not good enough, you know? So we're getting kind of like a tour of what this winery and vineyard looks like. So they have taken land that has, like, nothing in a very crowded country, and they made something very valuable in the space that was available to them. And they they also point out in the documentary that um, a, a Chinese wine from the J. Bay Lan Winery won a decanter top award in London in 2011, and people were shocked. And this showed that Chinese um, vineyards and wineries had a lot of potential. 
Yeah, and what's really cool is that women have played a big role in the Chinese mm-hmm. wine industry. And Crazy says that it's because, and Crazy is Crazy, Crazy Fong. Um, she says it's because women have more patience than men, which I kind of laughed at. <laughs> yeah. Because I don't have any patience. I did too. <laughs> and then they introduce us to Emma Gao, who's another wine superstar. And she's showing us, like, the colors of the stones to show us how mineral-rich their their soil is. She studied in Bordeaux. And she pointed out that she's been doing this for, like, 10 years, and they weren't making any money, and they're still building their company up. Whereas with Crazy Fong, she lived in Germany for a long time and came back to her hometown to start a vineyard. And people thought she was nuts, but after two years of establishing her winery, she's winning critical accolades. Girl power. Yes. <laughs> and she says that making wine is the easy part, but selling the wine is the hard part. And even though Chinese wines are winning awards, their sales are declining because they are struggling with consumer trust. Yeah. So as we know, and we've talked about before, there China, is, or China has a long history of food safety problems. So the Chinese actually prefer imported wines instead of domestic Because they know what they're getting when it's imported. And there have been things before in China, like bottling lines to bottle fake wines um, and some just kind of misdirection on what was actually happening. So the Chinese have a huge hurdle to jump over to get over um, a lot of these previous historical things that have happened um, in order to grow their Chinese business domestically. Which, I mean, I can totally understand why people are wary of Chinese wines. Oh, yeah. Like, I, un- until I saw Crazy Fong, I would have never touched a Chinese wine. But then I saw her and, like, you know, we got to see her personality. I was like, I'd buy wine from her. <laughs> She's silly. She, she doesn't, makes me happy. <laughs> she doesn't give me the vibes of the French mafia grandpa. I'd buy wine from her any day. <laughs> right. <laughs> And Chinese officials have figured out that the wine industry is fantastic for the economy. So they're really focusing on the land and the grapes and developing that region. So the government's built new roads, some chateaus in hopes that they'll eventually be tourist destinations. And they're also importing in a labor force from... Ningxia is an autonomous ethnic region with a large population of China's we Muslim minority. And so they're bringing these people in to labor on the vineyards because they live in a really remote area of the province. And so they don't have any opportunities or services out where they're from. So they're bringing them into the vineyard so that they have a place to work, essentially. And you have no choice. This is where the shitty Chinese-ness comes in. You don't have a choice. You will relocate. And just because you're poor, um, and this is pointed out in the documentary too, just because you're poor and you were living a rustic life doesn't necessarily mean that you want to uproot what you were doing and go work in a vineyard. Exactly. Like when they started showing these people, I was like, oh no, we're going to find out that they're essentially <laughs> like taking boats out there and picking them up and bringing them back. I mean, not boats, not actual boats, because there's probably no water in that area. But... It's the desert. No. <laughs> yeah. But you get the imagery I was thinking of. I was like, Big they're basically. White vans with no windows. <laughs> they're just kidnapping people and bringing them to vineyards. Yeah. Um, 
And what's even funny is that Muslims don't drink alcohol. So these people are working at these vineyards yeah. <laughs> on something that they'd never partaken. No, and they don't have experience in agriculture, in, at least in the like wine industry. Um, some of them did seem pretty happy to be working, but I wondered if somebody like had a gun off camera and pointing it at them <laughs> while they said that, and, and some just don't look too happy. So think what you will about that situation, because you could absolutely say, well, the government government's providing them with opportunities that they didn't have before, but they don't really have a choice either. And that's what I have a problem with is that they don't have a choice. Yeah, I have a big problem with that part too, because like they said, just because somebody lives a rustic lifestyle doesn't mean that they don't like it. Right. Like you're projecting your feelings on what a lifestyle should look like. Right. So one of the other things they covered was that they need really good branding because of all the things we already talked about. So China is really focusing on these, like this bigger winery because they need good branding to create a trustworthy, recognizable brand and to keep up with international competitors. So they're building a super advanced winery called Pigeon Hills, which is going to produce 3 million bottles in a year. But then they kind of pose the question of what happens to the smaller guys. And what they think might happen, I think what the goal is, is that Pigeon Hill could put all the smaller wineries on the map by creating trust in a large brand. So if this goes well, it could actually take a large part of the market share from other regions in Europe because China's huge. And if the Chinese start thinking, well, this wine is good, I can drink it, and it's from my own country, so I should, um, then that's going to put a big hole into some other regions that they're currently getting wine imported from. I wonder why they chose Pigeon for their <laughs> large winery. Like, so they're they're going for a branding message. Do they know what pigeons mean to Americans? <laughs> I don't know if they know that. That's a really good point, though. Right. I mean, they could have picked any bird. <laughs> yeah, like Crane, Crane Hills. Yes, exactly. Flamingo, Cranes are majestic. Flamingo Mountain. I don't know. <laughs> Flamingo Mountain. <laughs> <sighs> so now we're back in Long Dock and we meet Pierre de Root. And the documentary goes on to say that European viticulture um, has been saved by China because China rep represents a big share of the market with 20% of sales, which is a quarter of Long Dock's exports. So Pierre supplies the Chinese market. Sometimes Pierre supplements his French wine with Spanish wine, calling Spanish wine good, but French wines are better. And he does point out that the costs are different and it's more expensive in China than Europe. So if he sells Spanish wine or French wine to the Chinese, he's making more bang for his buck than when he sells it to Europe. And the documentary also points out that the Chinese are kind of fickle about their loyalty. And French mafia grandpa does not like that. And he does not like that they're buying up vineyards either in Long Dock. Yeah, and the Chinese actually recently bought Chateau de Bastille, which was in 2015. The The lady, the Chinese woman that bought it, she talks about how it's creating a bridge uh, of the old and new wine world. And her name is Nan Ping Gao. And she wants to bring the worlds together without violence. But the violence continues. Yes. And 
they circle back to Pierre and he was actually attacked by the Krav in 2018 and all the taps were opened and some of the vats collapsed and it was like a red tide on the property. And he lost 500,000 liters of wine that day. And this is because he's importing Spanish wines. Um, so poor Pierre lost 800,000 euros worth of wine because of that behavior. So Borwi won't comment on that crime. And the mafia grandpa had strong general feelings about Pierre, but he didn't admit that he was a part of that either. Yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of where they leave us. And then we're, we're back to Jeff wandering around his vineyards and saying beautiful things like, all the love you give, you'll get back. And he's talking in, in terms of his vineyard. And they they just kind of leave it there. Like, they say some fuzzy things, and then it's it's just done, and the credits roll. So it's like, okay, people that just watch this, how, go, go drink your feelings now and try to figure it all out. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this was another one where they don't exactly have any solutions or recommendations or suggestions. <laughs> no. It's just like, have fun reading your labels, Americans. Make your decisions. <laughs> I mean, there are tons of places to get wine from now. So you don't have to get wine from China or France or Spain or anywhere else where you think there might be a little bit of effery going on with the wine. Like California has an excellent wine culture and they're creating great wine there. And there's lots of small wineries all over the United States that create great wine. So, I mean, there's options. I don't think the moral was don't drink French wine or don't drink Chinese wine. But, you know, if if you're a little iffy about it, thankfully, there's other vineyards. <laughs> yeah, I think this is just another one, another way to tell us, like, if you want to be an informed consumer, um, you have to do your own research. And that might even be, go beyond just like reading the labels. That means you might have to do some Googling because there was a funny thing. That happened to me at my favorite um, place to get beer and wine. So the owner came over and he's like, well, this is, and it's the one I drank last night. He's like, this one's from Portuguese. And you hear a lot of bad things about Portuguese wine and what's going on down there. And I think it's like conflict related. So I don't think this experience is necessarily unique to avocados or Languedoc or China. It can happen anywhere. So if you want to put your money where your mouth is, um, it's good to do a little research. I still bought that ten bo- $10 bottle of wine because it had a cute dog on it and it's a red red blend and I like red blends. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's that's kind of how I roll. Um, but it does make me, this made me a little more conscious about what's happening in other countries. And, you know, maybe if I do want to buy wine from Languedoc, I might, you know, kind of put it back on the shelf if it's funding the crop to go F things up. <laughs> Yeah, like, I'd like to go try to find that Jeff guy's wine. I'd buy his wine. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and that doesn't surprise me. When he leaves us with, all the love you give, you'll get back. That's the but that's the wine Bob's going to go drink. <laughs> I kind of want to drink the French Mafia grandpa's wine because I feel like it's probably damn good. <laughs> but probably. It fuels, but it fuels terror. So. Right. <laughs> So definitely go watch it, you guys, if you haven't already. Get in our group. Let us know what you think. Don't be shy. Just don't be an asshole. That's all we ask. Um, 
because we're interested to see what you guys thought about maybe the sex dungeon or long dock or Chinese wine. We want to hear all about it. Yes. Yes, we do. All right. So uh, we just want to remind you to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts. And when you leave us a review, we're reading one of them on each of our regular episodes. And if we read your review, we put your name in a hat and you could win an exclusive coffee mug that is not and will never be in the shop. So be sure and go do that. And make sure you hit the subscribe button and download the episode. You can also do us a favor by sharing this episode over on Instagram and your stories and tag us at Drink and Farm. We'll send you a promo code for a percentage off in the shop if you do that. And make sure you take a look at the show notes to find uh, links to the articles that we discussed um, and a survey to tell us how we're doing, all of our social media goodness, and our merch shops. Yeah. So thanks for listening. Yeah, we enjoyed going on this wine journey with you, and and we hope you enjoyed it, too. (laughs) So until next time, drink, farm, and give zero clucks. Bye, guys. Bye. We drink things, we farm things, we drink and